Last week, dear friends, we considered the, uh, the miracle of the healing of this, of this lame man and the persecution uh, or the uh, trial then that took place when Peter and John were brought before the Jewish leadership there to give an account of their actions. And after uh, they were released, for, or after they had finished this trial, then we read at the end of, verse, or of chapter 4, again, of the tremendous unity and enthusiasm there was in the first church uh, when the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them. You can read with me in, at the end of chapter 4 that uh, in verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So here you see this beautiful picture, isn't it? And now Peter and John have just come out of this trial, and, and we reflected last week on how the opposition, that was the title of the sermon, you'll remember, the opposition came from without, right? The Jewish leadership, the Sadducees and the, and the priests had captured, uh, had captured Peter and John and brought them to trial. And so the opposition came from without. But now we see a difference, don't we? Now we see the, the terrible... Uh, what shall I say, the, the, the savvy, right? the never-ending opposition that comes from Satan. Because when the opposition from without, when that fails to achieve its purpose, he moves to stirring up opposition from within. My friends, Satan never stops his opposition, his, his antagonism against the church of God. Right? And you'll, you'll know I've... If there's one word I've said enough times from this pulpit is that word antithesis, right? That word that so clearly teaches us the opposition, the never-ending opposition of Satan. He never pauses. He never sleeps. He never stops. And when the opposition from without has failed, he turns to opposition from within the church. And you can see the antithesis and the antagonism of Satan, especially in verse 3, right? Where when Peter asked Ananias, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? You see that Peter himself, right, has this understanding that Satan, yes, it was Ananias and Sapphira, but behind Ananias and Sapphira were all the powers of hell that were, that were uh, set in array against the church of God to destroy it. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so it will be, my friends, from the beginning to the end of the world. And God has said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. That now is the setting that we have as we take up this study of Acts chapter 5. Now, one of the most beautiful manifestations of this unity and this joy that existed amongst the early church was this tremendous spirit of generosity. And by the way, if you just leaf back with me to, chat, to Acts chapter 2, you'll remember this is when it began. Immediately after the, apostle, the Spirit had been poured out in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, you'll remember Peter has preached his sermon, but already in Acts 2 and verse 44, and all those who had believed were together 
and had all things in common. The, the spirit of generosity was, was so high that, that people didn't even regard their own possessions as their own. But they, they brought it to the relief of those. And remember, they had a great deal of opportunity for that. Again, let me just refresh your memory that many of the people had come, many of the Jews who did not live in Jerusalem, had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And after the Spirit had been poured out upon these people, they stayed. This was the church of God. This is where they gathered. This is where they worshipped. This is where they heard the apostolic teaching. And so they stayed. And so they didn't have normal jobs, uh, immediately at least. And of course, once the persecution really starts to pick up, they probably couldn't even get normal jobs if they wanted to. So there was a great... The Jerusalem church congregation was always a needy church. You find even in Paul's letters that he's often taking a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. It was always a poor and a needy a people. A lot of poverty and hardship in that church. But in Acts 2 and 44, we see this already, this uh, tremendous generosity. Then if we go to verse 32 of chapter 4, in Acts 4 and verse 32, right, this is what we read already. But let me drop down to verse 36. Look in chapter 4 and verse 36. Because here we have a specific example. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, so a man from the island of Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas, so obviously he's going to be an important person in the book of Acts going forward, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have this tremendous enthusiasm for the relief of anyone who was suffering hardship in the early church. And Barnabas, we are given his name and exactly what he did. He sold this land and laid the money that he gained from the sale of it at the feet of the apostles. So there was a benevolent fund, right? There was a benevolent fund. Our church has a benevolent fund, almost every church does, right? To minister to the needs and the relief of those who are suffering. Now, this undoubtedly then puts the thought, triggers the idea in the mind of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, the account we're given here is very brief, but again, I think that we can fill in the details a little bit here, right? That Ananias and Sapphira, uh, people in the early church of some means, at least they owned property, and when they hear about Barnabas, and when they begin to catch something of the spirit of the generosity that's happening here, that they also desire to do the same. And my friends, I, I don't think we have any indication from the text that they didn't intend anything else but the, the relief of the poor, exactly as Barnabas had intended. Again, the, the text is very brief here. It doesn't fill in all the details that we'd like to know, but it seems likely that Ananias and Sapphira also desired to be generous, and so that they also sold a tract of land, which they had, and brought that money home. And you can imagine that as they were packaging up that money, they did quite well on it. And they're putting it together, however they would have packaged up money back then. And you can almost see them, can't you? Because you know yourself, and I know myself, that as they begin to put the bills in piles, probably wasn't paper money, but again, I'm just putting it in terms that we can understand here, right? The thought begins to grow in them. Wow, this is a lot of money. Do we have to give all of this to the, to the benevolent fund? Can't we keep back some of that? We have bills to pay too. I mean, we, you know, 
we're not extremely wealthy people. And uh, yes, we, we want to be generous to help, but we don't have to give all the money. And already is sparked in their minds this thing. I, I call it a thing. I don't know what else to call it. This idea, right? This, this seed, as it were, that was planted in their mind that became a sin. And so let's go then to my next point here. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? I want to be very clear here, my friends. I, I did a lot of reading on Ananias and Sapphira this week. And I, I find that uh, a lot of people have, have rather strange ideas about what the sin of Ananias and Sapphira were, was. And it, it, it's interesting to me because the Bible is very specific about it. So let me say what it was not. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira, my friends, was not that they did not give all of the money that they had earned from the sale of that land to the apostles. You follow me? They did not have to give all of the money. They did not have to give any of the money. Their sin was not a lack of generosity. They did not need to sell the property. And once they had sold the property, they didn't need to give the money to the apostles. That was not their sin. They had committed no sin if they had kept all the money back. Now, Peter says exactly that, doesn't he? In verse 4, when, Ananias, or when Peter is addressing Ananias and, and asking him these questions, he says, and please read with me, take your Bible and read Acts 5 and verse 4. Read this with me. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, Ananias, you didn't need to sell the property. Now, we know that God has laid down the, the general principle that we, we give a tenth of our income to the church, to the, to the work of God, right? And, and so that we're not talking about that now, right? That still remained an obligatory thing for those Christians. Although a tenth, they would have laughed at that, right? They were giving much more than a tenth. But Ananias was under no obligation to sell that land. Furthermore, says Peter in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And then in the next thing he says, and after it was sold, was it not under your control? So afterwards, when you had that pile of money, let's just say they had $1,000 because they had sold this land. And that's the second not on my list there. The not, I'm sorry, the first one, I'm still on the first one. The, the, the sin was not that they decided to give uh, only a part of the money. Peter is saying you could have given $1 you could have given $900. You could have given the whole thousand. But you were under no obligation, Ananias, to give any or some or all of that amount. That was not the sin. That in the first place. Second, the sin was not, at least the text doesn't tell us this, it was not that they initially resolved to give all of the money, but then changed their mind and decided to retain some. I heard a preacher say this just this week. That he even said that Ananias and Sapphira had made some kind of public announcement to that end. That they were now going to sell this tract of land and they were going to give all of the proceeds to the apostles. Now again, that may have happened, I don't know, but the text doesn't say that, right? The, the scriptures doesn't give us any reason, to the best of my knowledge, that Ananias and Sapphira had made some kind of public declaration that they were going to give everything. So that wasn't the sin. It wasn't that they went back on their word. I don't find anywhere... That, that Ananias made an initial promise to give it all and then decided to only give some. 
my, my third not there is not that they should have given all and trusted God to provide for them. I've also read this, that Ananias and Sapphira should have sold everything they had and given it to the apostles and relied on God to provide for them. Again, there's, there's nothing like that. In fact, I, I think that is directly contradicted by what Peter says. He says in, in verse 4, Ananias, this was your property. You decided to sell it, and you decided to give it to the poor. You were under no obligation to do so. So those three knots, okay, what the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not. But what was their sin then? Well, I think Peter says very clearly. He says very clearly in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Again, Peter had asked him. Peter had asked him, uh, well, he asked them uh, uh, in the, uh, when Sapphira comes, and so we can assume that he would have asked Peter this, the same question, right? That is this the, the whole price, right? And Ananias would have affirmed that. And so Peter, again, very likely, well, not very likely, almost certainly, right, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter that Ananias is telling this falsehood. He's telling a lie. He's saying something that he knows to be false. And this is the sin of Ananias. That when Peter says, is this the whole price? Ananias said, yes. And it wasn't the whole price. It was only a part of it. That was the sin of Ananias. And that's why the text makes it clear that the sin was that he lied. He told, he said something that he knew to be false. And let's be very clear on what a lie is, my friends. We throw that around way too easily in our day. But a lie is when you, it's not when you say something that's false, right? That's not a lie, right? A lie is when you say something that you know to be false. And Ananias knew that there was only $500 in the bag that he gave to Peter, not the full thousand. And so he said and told a lie. That was the problem, not his lack of generosity, not his retaining part of this price of the retaining some of the money for himself, but the lie that he told. And of course, that sin was a symptom of a deeper problem, wasn't it? The deeper problem that the, the Satan himself had taken control of Ananias and his wife. Well, we read uh, later then, three hours afterwards, that Sapphira comes in. And here again, you see the lie very clearly. Because Peter asked her in verse 8, tell me, notice the question of Peter, right? Notice the question of Peter. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. Now, why would Peter care about that? I can't imagine that everybody that came in to donate money, you know, uh, is, this, is this the whole part of what you sold? No, because he, see here, Peter knows, right? By the revelation of the Spirit of God, he knows that a lie is being told. And to uncover and to expose this lie, he asked the question, right, which is at the heart of the issue. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. There's the lie. My friends, the punishment was immediate, right? Number three on the outline, the punishment is immediate. Both of them collapse instantly and die. And here too, again, you, I said at the beginning of this series, right, that the book of Acts is so much a book about the acts 
not so much of the apostles, but the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that Ananias and Sapphira were lying. And now the Holy Spirit strikes both of them dead. We don't have such a direct work of the Spirit in our day. Right? We don't, when we have church discipline cases, the guilty party doesn't drop dead. Right? That's, just, that's not how it happens in our day. And God in his sovereign will has so decreed it to be. We have to go through all the hard work of investigating. Right? But here you see the acts of the Holy Spirit. That God, through the Holy Spirit, strikes both of these guilty people down dead immediately. And fourth, the effect is given us in verses 12, that more miracles take place. But notice in verse 13, this is actually a rather difficult verse to understand. Let me try to help you understand verse 13. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem, which seems to contradict what it says in verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Well, back up to verse 12. I think that's, that'll help us understand this. In Acts 5 and verse 12, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. So I understand that to be among the believers, the people who believed in Christ, who were part of the church, among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. So this was actually a subdivision of the temple where these believers have gathered and are worshiping and praying to the Lord. So that when we get to verse 13, but none of the rest, in other words, those who also had heard and seen these things, but did not believe, they're unbelievers, right? Verse 13, but none of the rest of those who, were, who did not believe what they had seen, did not believe in Jesus, dared to associate with them. And that makes sense, right? I mean, after you hear what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, I think that would strike you with terror. However, the people held them in high esteem. And then in verse 14, and all the more believers, and again, there's the difference, right? All the more believers. So people were being added to the church in great numbers. But those who saw and did not believe were terrified and pulled back and wouldn't even go near them, wouldn't even associate with them. So that's the effect. Number four in my outline here, the effect of this uh, severity of God upon Ananias and Sapphira is great fear on the part of the unbelievers. But notice what happens with the believers. They, they rush their sick and their ill people into the streets. And Peter, and again, not Peter, but the Holy Spirit in Peter is so powerful and so direct. Right? I mean, we just talked about church discipline cases in our church and in, in this church, right? But now look at this. Peter just walking down the street. His shadow instantly heals people. The news gets out in verse 16 to the, to the cities in the vicinity and people, people flock into Jerusalem with their sick and afflicted, and they are all being healed. Notice, and they were all being healed. That's a remarkable time in the life of the church, isn't it? Well, my friends, I have four points of application to make. The first, I'm going to be very brief, because I think you saw it yourself. But in verse 3 and in verse 4, we have the clearest proof in the Bible of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's, very, it's quite simple to prove from the scripture that Jesus is God. But to prove that the Holy Spirit is God is given us in verse 3, right? where Peter accuses Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, he says, You have not lied unto men, but you have lied unto God. Because the Holy Spirit and God, in Peter's mind, are the same person. 
Now, there's no Christian body that denies that the Holy Spirit is God that I know of today. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean, I don't count them as Christians, but the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, deny the deity of Christ. And there may be some Unitarians or Oneness Pentecostals uh, who, who deny it. But by and large, every Christian denomination believes in the deity of the Holy Spirit. But at any rate, this is the clearest proof in Scripture of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now I move then to points two and points three, because I believe, my friends, that Ananias and Sapphira preach to us this evening. And as we started the sermon this evening, behold both the goodness and the severity of God. And I believe, my friends, that the Ananias is the first preacher that I would ask you to hear and to listen to this evening. The preaching of Ananias. And if Ananias has a truth, my friends, that he preaches to us, it is this, God is not mocked. That's the truth in Galatians 6, verse 7. God is not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, you shall also reap. Now in this time, my friends, the Spirit worked very immediately and very directly, and Ananias immediately collapses. And you can say to yourself, well, God doesn't work that way anymore. And in a sense, you're true. But my friends, what really is the point of talking about that brief span of time between the sin that we commit and the judgment that we're going to face when we come to the end of our life? That if we are living apart from Christ, if we are living, as Ananias did, in the church, confessing the name of Christ, and yet we know in our heart that we are living a life of sin, that our profession of Christ is a lie, it's a deceit, then what's the difference between a person collapsing immediately and a person who at the end of his life will hear from the king of the church, depart from me, for I never knew you. That is the preaching of Ananias tonight. And as we saw already from Psalm 50, my friends, these are people within the church. That is the preaching of Ananias. You know, you, you, you wonder to yourself, how could Ananias have possibly thought that he could outsmart, as it were, may I say it that way, outsmart the Holy Spirit of God? That the same Spirit of God who had been poured out on the day of Pentecost, who had given these people the ability to speak these languages that they'd never studied, all the miracles that Ananias would have seen Peter and the other apostles do, and there were many of them, right? Just a few of them are mentioned here, but many miracles were done. The lame man walking around that we talked about, the man sitting at the temple, walking on two good feet. Ananias, do you not think that the God of heaven sees into your heart? And that when you and Sapphira conspired together, to stick to this story that you were donating the whole proceeds of the sale of your land to the benevolent fund. That the Holy Spirit wouldn't see through that. But my friends, so it is for anyone who chooses to live a life of sin, who chooses to live that lie in the church of God. Do you think, honestly think, that you can fool the all-seeing eye of God? And that's why the preaching of Ananias is, is very sharp tonight. Very sharp. And it teaches us that even in the visible church of God, there are those who do not love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. 
God is not mocked. I move to my third point of application, the preaching of Sapphira. This is even sadder in many ways than the preaching of Ananias. Because, my friends, God in his love and in his mercy gives Sapphira space to repent. Peter, when, when, when Sapphira finally arrives at the house, you notice how differently Peter responds to Sapphira than he did to Ananias. To Ananias, Peter went right in. He said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? But he treats Sapphira differently. He says to Sapphira, tell me. And my friends, every word of this question is dripping with the loving kindness and the mercy of God. I hope you can hear it tonight. Tell me. Whether you sold the land for such and such a price. Oh, Sapphira, stop. Stop and listen. Here you have a little space given you in the mercy of God to repent and to say, no, I'm not going to follow my, my husband Ananias in this sin. I'm not going to follow him in that. I'm going to stop and take a stand for what I know is right. We told a lie. It was not the full price. God, in his mercy, my friends, comes and he gives her a day of grace. Time to repent. Sapphira, God is merciful. God is ready to forgive. You don't need to follow your husband into sin and finally into judgment itself. Jesus said to Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here he says to Sapphira, Oh, Sapphira, Sapphira, stop. Stop. Think. Consider. All day long, says Paul. God says through Paul in Romans 10, All day long. Have I stretched out my hands to a wicked and a gainsaying people? And this is now the picture of God we have tonight, my friends. I know we started the, 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 the call to worship. Behold both the kindness and the severity of God, and we expect to hear about God's severity. But my friends, here is the kindness of God. That Sapphira is given an opportunity to repent. It is her final opportunity. But she is given space to repent. Tell me, and as I said, my friends, I hope you can hear it tonight. Every word of Peter's question drips, is heavy with the love of God and the mercy of Christ towards this sinful woman. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And Sapphira says, yes, that was the price, and so seals her own condemnation. My friends, the preaching of Sapphira tonight is that you do not have to follow others into sin. Wives, yes, wives submit to their husbands, but to a point. Wives do not follow their husbands into sin. Then you have to take a stand and boldly say, no, in this I will not submit. I will not follow my husband into sin. Dear young people, all sorts of pressures are brought upon you by the people you associate with at work and at college, and at school. All these pressures. You are called to stand as a follower of Christ and to say no. To stand on your own two feet and to say no, I will not follow them into sin.
Many of us will have read in the history books of when the perpetrators of the Nazi Holocaust came to Nuremberg and stood trial. They all made the same defense. I was just following orders. No, my friends. Submission to any earthly authority is always limited by our fear, our reverence for God himself. We ultimately march to his orders. He is our God and our king. And we do not follow others into sin. No matter who he is, no matter who she is, no earthly person will excuse you at the bar of God's judgment from the sin that you commit, even if they give you an order to commit it. This is the preaching of Sapphira tonight. We do not follow others into sin. You know, I remember when I bought a car once, and I'll never forget feeling rather uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, when the man signed the, uh, again, I don't understand what, he signed some document, and he had to state on there the value of the car. And he said, oh, he said, we give the government too much money. And so he signed it like $5 or something, even though I paid like $3,000 for the car. My father was with me at the time. And we both just kind of looked on. Neither of us said anything. But when we got in the car, my dad said, I don't feel too good about that. I don't think that was right. So when I got to the Secretary of State's office, I told them exactly what had happened. I said, he signed it for $5, but I paid this much. And so they made it right. But my friends, if I had been right, and I suppose if my father had been right, we would have stopped it right there and said, no, that's telling a lie. That is as sure a lie as any lie I've ever told in my life. And that can't be tolerated. And we don't follow other people into sin. We stand on our own two feet. We have the word of God in our minds and in our hearts. And we will not submit to follow others into sin. This is the preaching of Sapphira, my friends, that God gives us a mind to think and to discern. She chose to follow her husband into sin and therefore into destruction. But we, my friends, let us not commit the sin of Sapphira. That is the preaching of Sapphira tonight. The fourth application, the visible church. And I've already mentioned this in some regard, my friends, but the visible church. What a serious thing it is to consider that in the visible church of God, there are both sincere Christians and also hypocrites. That there are Ananiases and Sapphiras in every visible church. And my friends, that means there's Ananiases and Sapphiras in this church. It means that there could be an Ananias and Sapphira on the consistory. There could be one on the council. There could be one in the pulpit. And it behooves us to take stock of our walk and our trust in God. And when we feel the, the, the unsettling character, my friends, of this, of this reality that there are hypocrites in the church of God, how do we deal with that? How do we respond to it? You can always, you can always lambast the preacher, right? You can always accuse the preacher of being too, uh, too sharp or too whatever, whatever you might say. But the reality is all the same. That there are hypocrites in the church of God. And my friend, it's my prayer this evening 
that when we think about the presence of hypocrites and we ask, Lord, is it I? I, I hope you understand, right? We don't ask about other people. But Lord, is it I? Am I a hypocrite? Am I deceiving myself? Let that very thought drive you to the cross of Christ. That's the only place where such a thought should bring you. My friends, how much better to be uncovered to our deceit here while we live yet in a day of grace, while we yet can hear the preaching of Sapphira that God gives us space to repent, than to discover it when it's too late, when we stand before the throne of God in judgment. And that's why as unsettling and as, as uncomfortable as it is to, to, to dwell upon this, this thought that there are hypocrites in the church of Christ, I hope you understand, my friends, that the most loving thing I can say to you is be sure that you are holding and clinging to the cross of Christ and nothing else. That is the only thing that will survive God's judgment seat because he sees into the hearts of every person. He knows who's an Ananias. He knows who is a Sapphira. You can fool us. You can fool the elders. In fact, God forbids us from even trying, right, to discern who's a hypocrite and who's not. But you cannot fool the judge of all the earth. And that's why, my friends, today, this evening, it behooves us to fall on our knees before the all-seeing eye of God and say, Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts within and lead me in the way everlasting. And my friends, as soon as there comes any doubt, and there do come doubts in our life, because we are not what we're supposed to be, we have so many sins that we see. Let it drive us to Christ. Let it drive us to Christ. That's the only place, my friends, that we can come. This is where we find assurance. This is how we find that peace of God, which passes all understanding. And my friends, I don't want to end this sermon uh, thinking about Ananias and Sapphira. How I would love it if we could end this sermon by thinking of these multitudes of people, men and women, who came to Christ during this time. We have just Ananias and Sapphira, but the text tells us of 5,000 who came to Christ. Many of them had bodily ailments healed, but their soul was saved. They were brought to the cross of Christ, and they had that peace of God which passes understanding. That, my friends, is what Christ, that's what the Spirit of God does in the church. Then, it's what he does in the church now. And if this sermon, if the Holy Spirit would use this sermon to take one of us, two of us, all of us, and to drive us to the cross again, then it would be a success. That's all I ask, my friends. That's all I hope for me. That's all I hope for you. That tonight we would cling a little tighter to the cross of Jesus Christ and to know that peace that passes all understanding. May God bless it. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we all, Lord, have the same prayer this evening. Lord, is it I? Am I an Ananias? Am I a Sapphira? Am I one who has taken your covenant in my mouth while my heart is far from you? Lord, this evening, we take all those doubts. We take all our anxieties on this point and lay them at the foot of the cross. Or today is Easter, Lord, we lay them at the foot of the empty tomb. And we leave them there. And we find at the cross of Christ, we find at the empty tomb a peace 
and assurance that passes all understanding. Lord, forbid that anyone here would ever deceive themselves on this all-important point, but that we would all cleave ever closer and take, ever, and take hold all the harder of the promise of salvation in Christ. Lord, will you remember us then in your mercy and bless us and our children also with these thoughts. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn in closing then to number 266. This is the same song we sang uh, at, at the close of last week's message on the book of Acts. But again, now Israel may say, and that in truth, if that the Lord had not our right maintained, if that the Lord had not with us remained, when cruel men against us rose to strive, we surely had been swallowed up alive. Well, it's the same story, isn't it, this evening? when we talked about opposition from within the church. So number 266, the three verses.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.